All right, please turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Peter. I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, all glory, all power, all sovereignty, all dominion over all things does belong to You. May You train us not to steal it, to take of it. May You allow us to taste the fruit of the tree, the fruit of the root that You have planted in all who believe. And may the glory of Your coming show through this morning. Not just Your first, but Your second coming, we pray. Amen. So that's my main question this morning, the way I ended the prayer. Is do you have an eschatology? That's the big word for study of last things. Do do you have a theology, an understanding about the end times, second coming? Do you have an eschatology that you can live with? Or a better way to say it is, an eschatology that is extremely integral to how you live in this life, or that is the fruit, the power, or the root, I mean, of how you deal with life, how you deal with pain, how you deal with suffering, how you deal with persecution, trials, the hard times that are coming. Because this passage that we are in now, is saying that for the sake of your souls, for the sake of your prayer life, for the sake of your sanctification, the way you live, the way you love each other in the body of Christ, the way you use God's gifts to you that He's given for the sake of others, according to this passage, it says you better have an eschatology. At least this. Jesus Christ, who came once as the suffering servant, will come again in the clouds of heaven, in the resurrected body. And He will bring in the final judgment of the living and the dead. And He will usher in the age to come. Do you, do you know that? Do you believe that? Is that a treasure to you? 
this passage has two main points. The first one is verse 7a. The second main point is everything else. Verse 7a, the very first proposition, statement, is the reason, the foundation for everything else we read in this text. It's the reason and the foundation for serious prayer, for loving others. It comes out of that, verse 7a, for using your gifts in the service of others. In other words, why live this way of verses 7 to 11? Answer, because the end of all things is near. That's why the next word is, therefore, based upon that, the rest of verses 7 to 11. Love one another. Pray. Use your gifts on behalf of each other. Show hospitality without grumbling. Why? Because the end of all things is at hand. It's close. And so we're going to be in this text for two weeks. This week we're going to look at the first part. Because there's two main things I want to do. I want to look at and say, okay, what is Peter really saying? What, what, what does he intend to communicate here? And then the second part of this sermon this morning, then how does that apply to us now in the year 2010 in our everyday lives? That's where I'm going. And we're going to come back next week and deal with the rest of the passage. This morning, just the foundational statement, the end of all things is at hand. What's Peter's point? What is he saying there when he said that? Was Peter, when he wrote, here's, this is what's going on in his mind. Is he intending to communicate to the readers, I mean, the Christian community throughout Asia Minor and all these hundred cities or more, is, is his intention to say, Jesus is coming back in the next few weeks. Or the next few months, or maybe five years, ten years, but (laughs) certainly by the end of the first century. Is that what Peter meant to say? And therefore, he was wrong. That's the first question I want to deal with. There are some scholars, New Testament scholars, people that read, that think that's what Peter meant. And even other New Testament writers uh, taught they knew for sure they're preaching Jesus' second coming would come by the end of the first century for sure in that first generation and therefore they were wrong. (laughs) You understand the implications of that? Well, by definition, the inerrancy of Scripture, were they really what I think the Bible teaches, the way Jesus spoke about it, like the Old Covenant, Old Testament prophets, revelatory spokespeople, when Paul wrote, when Peter wrote, did Peter really have a view of Christian history that was wrong because he didn't come back in ten years from the writing of this letter? Or even within the first century, and we're 2,000 years later, 
now, and he still hasn't come back. A lot rides on that. Now, of course, I'm going to answer, it's not what he intended. Okay. But now, so what, what is he doing? Does, is Peter saying this, which, you know, a lot of evangelical Christians would say, okay, no, that is wrong. He didn't intend to communicate that. But what he intended to communicate was that somehow Peter saw and understood that events have all happened now, in the writing of this letter, so that at any moment Jesus could come back. And that's what he's trying to communicate. Or, in other words, something like this. Is Peter's writing in the year A.D. 63. Don't you get it now? Now! The end of all things is close. Or, he could come back tonight or in the next couple hours. Therefore, be vigilant. Be sober for the sake of your prayers. Is he saying, now things have changed. What needed to happen, happened before the end or before the second coming. It's now happened. Therefore, live differently than you did ten years ago, Christian. Or something like that. Does that make any sense? Okay. Uh, I'm not so sure that's what Peter is intending to communicate. Another con- context is the main thing I, for me. He, he had just made the statement before he says the end of all things is near, Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. There's the context. Now, the end of all things is near. The end, the culmination of your salvation. It's, he's saying, this is what I think he's saying, it's sure. In, in your persecutions, first century Christians, Remember, that was the context. Even those who persecute you, they're going to give an account. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. In your persecutions, know this. Know about the last things. Know about the centrality of them. The the end of all things is at hand. It's sure. Live in the consciousness as you're suffering. Of that reality. It's absolutely coming. Now, I'm going to try to say it two different, three different. Why does he say last thing? Because in the New Testament, Jesus came and he inaugurated the last days. They're here, but they're not yet, and there's this, this tension. And Peter gets that. Do you understand in redemptive historical terms, the last stuff came. And we're still awaiting the last part of the last stuff. The second part of it is coming. You live in a unique, wonderful age that the prophets who went before you could only try to figure out what is this Christ we're talking about. That's how he talked about in chapter 1. But his point is, whether you die in 10 years or remember, he says, this is why some of your other family members who are Christians or brothers and sisters who have gone on to die, that's why the gospel was preached to them. So that they're judged in the flesh. Death is judgment. 
cancer and all that that comes is because sin. Okay, remember that? But they live. But in order that they may live according to the Spirit, because they were born again. They were in Christ. And everyone, those who have gone before you and died, and you who are yet to die, He will have a great day of judgment where He will judge the living and the dead. He's saying, this is so central to the hope of the Gospel. Live in that hope. That's the power for the Christian life. Okay. That's what I think Peter's intention is in this statement. Now let me just say a couple of things. I, I don't think he's got a chart out. And he said, well, look what just happened in A.D. 48 and then 50. And then Paul, Paul's actually extending the gospel now to the Gentiles. You know, it went from Samaria and unto the other parts of the earth. And okay, all this is now fulfilled. Here's the chart. Now Jesus could come back tonight. Because everything is said. I don't think that's in his mind. Remember in the book of Acts in the first chapter. Peter is there. Jesus has been resurrected and during the 50 or so, for, uh, 40 days before His ascension, Jesus with Peter standing there, this is how Luke records it. So when they had come together, including Peter, they asked Jesus, Lord, when, w- w- Lord will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. So I don't think Peter's saying, I know the times and He's coming back really soon. Or you turn to the book of Luke. You're going to read extensively. Peter's there in Jerusalem. He's there when Jesus is speaking at the temple about the temple to begin with. When he says, in, starting with verse 6 and 7, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Temple. And they asked Him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So, so the temple's going to be destroyed. Okay, What are the signs? And then he goes on in, in verse 9 and he gives some signs. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place. But the end will not be at once or immediately following. So there's this undefined amount of time once you even see the signs. Peter's there. Uh, Next verse, verse 10, he continues. Nation will rise against nation 
and kingdom against kingdom, there will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And, and then verse 12, but, Jesus continues, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Okay, says, but before all this, in other words, there's going to be this time of persecution before you start seeing the signs he talked about in verses 10 to 11. So, I know, it'd be good if you'd look. Can you follow me? Jesus just said, persecution, you guys, is going to be happening to you. You're going to be put in prison. Okay. We know some of you are going to be killed. That's going to happen. For how long is it going to happen? He doesn't say. Then after that, the signs of verses 10 to 11 are going to happen. That's the flow. And then there's another space of time because verses 10 to 11 come after verses 8 and 9, where he says the end is not yet immediately coming. Okay. So, so Peter, he hears some signs before the end can actually happen. Okay. Now, Jesus closes out this speech, and this is, what, this is the, the idea where I think Peter is really going from the whole book of 1 Peter in persecution and suffering. Jesus says this, starting in verse 34 of Luke 21. But... Here's the, here, here's the rub, he's saying. Watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. It's just loose living according to your flesh. And drunkenness. And cares of this life. And that that day come upon you suddenly like a trap on an animal. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So he's pray. Be vigilant about it. Watch your life and affections, Jesus is saying. And that's what I think Peter's picking up on when he says in our text in verse 7 the end of all things, it, it's at hand. And all the signs that come before it, including persecution. That you're going through right now. Okay? It's in hand. You get it? Therefore, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Okay, so, so far, would you, would you agree? And remember, Jesus says, I will bring all these things to your remembrance, especially talking to the apostles. Would you agree that Peter at least had an understanding 
that Jesus is not going to come back before the temple in Jerusalem are destroyed. Look at, let me just look at verse 20 in Luke 21. Jesus, in this whole discourse, was clear. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. And, and then verse 24. They, he's talking about Jerusalem, they will fall by the edge of the sword. And they will be led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And they're not fulfilled yet. So, but Peter's back in the first century. He's writing this in A.D. 63. The temple, sacrifices, the city of Jerusalem is standing. He doesn't know. He won't be alive on earth to see it. He'll be dead in the next two years. But in seven years from here, when he's writing, seven years, that's it, Jerusalem and the fulfillment of this prophecy will happen. Titus and the Roman army will siege, and they will wipe out Jerusalem and kill thousands of Jews. And they will be scattered away from Jerusalem as the people who they dominate that city for the next couple thousand years. That happens in A.D. 70. Peter knows that's got to happen. And doesn't he also know that he's going to die it wasn't Jesus clear to him? You know, it's going to take a little bit of time. You know, you're going to have to be taken captive. Okay? Maybe, maybe all that can happen in one day. But, but Peter, you're, you're going to die this way as an, old, as an old man. And Jerusalem is still standing. So I don't think Peter's point is, is to say, that's it. Everything that's got to be fulfilled is fulfilled. Therefore, Jesus can come back any moment. That's why you need to pray. No. Are you a Christian? That's what he's saying. With the end times, all this stuff, persecution is part of the package. And there are other signs that need to happen. Here's the point for praying. That you make it. And not be caught off guard when Jesus comes back in the clouds of heaven. I think Peter would agree with this. Not be caught off guard when you did not see that bus coming. And you're gone. So, when Peter says the end is near, pray! That's what he means. Don't let life, suffering, the stuff that your Savior promised you, don't let that kill you spiritually. Don't fall asleep in living that is not prayerful. But as your heart grows harder and harder and you find out that you're not just drinking, you're a drunkard. I mean, 
It's how Peter ta- that's how Jesus talked, and that's how Peter's been talking, right? Watch out for dissipation and loose living. That is his main point. Okay. Peter just said in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4, right before this text, quote, but they, your persecutors, pain in life, but they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though they're judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is near. It's, it's at hand. Saying, hold! This is, his, I think, his, hold to that reality which was true and helpful to every Christian who's lived for 2,000 years and died before the second coming. Hold to this reality. There really is an age to come. And it will come. And so as Jesus said, and Peter's there, Quote Jesus, but stay awake at all times, praying so that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And Peter picks up on it. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be sober-minded for the purpose of praying. Pray to escape a sinful life of dissipation. Pray that you escape hard-heartedness. Pray that you escape the effects of persecution and suffering. Instead of causing your faith to grow, it causes you to chuck it. That's what I think his main point is. Let me just paraphrase. Hopefully it's helpful again. Say, in other words, what I think Peter's saying. Judgment of the living and the dead is absolutely sure. Jesus promised it. The end of all things is near. You better believe it. Because in a redemptive, historical understanding of the Bible, we're at the end. God created. It's part of historical redemptive history. That happened. The fall of mankind, another part of it. That happened a long time ago in Adam. God judged the earth in Noah's day with a flood. That happened. God called One man, Abraham, and made himself a people. Through his son Isaac, his son Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and who had twelve sons and the twelve tribes of Israel. That happened! God let them slowly become slaves in Egypt for hundreds of patient, enduring years. That happened. God then called Moses to be the deliverer 
and to lead the exodus out of Egypt. And God to give to them, the Jews, the law. That happened. He led them into the land that He promised. Centuries later now, that happened. He gave them kings. It happened. He gave them David. And He prophesied numbers of times in the Old Covenant that a son from David's line would be the promised king of kings. He will be the Messiah. A thousand years from David in that promise. Then the angel Gabriel came to a teenage girl one day told her about that promised Messiah is in your womb. And He lived in perfect humanity. And He died as He said. No one took His life. He laid it down and became the substitutionary sacrifice. And God raised Him bodily, physically, His true in all of His humanity from the dead to this new glorious resurrection body like He promised all who are His will one day likewise have. That happened. This is what Peter's talking about. This, the culmination of all history is upon us. We wait for this one last thing that, that, that hangs now. Some things, some signs before it maybe. But the last big thing, that's all that's left. That's what I think He's saying. The end of all things is at hand. That one big last thing is that that one now who came as a suffering, bleeding, dying, humble lamb is coming back as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and He will usher in through the resurrection of the body, the last judgment, the great white throne, the separation of the sheep and the goats. He'll bring about the promised age to come. It is near. It's nearer than it's ever been before. Why are you telling us that, Peter? Don't fritter away your life. Because it's true. That's what he's saying. Don't. Don't fritter away this very short life. Eternity and what that end time coming means is real. That's what he's saying. It's been his point the whole time. Remember chapter 1, verse 13. Place your hope fully in the grace to be brought to you at the second coming. That's why I started this. Do you have an eschatology that you can live with? When I say live with, that is the engine, that is the gasoline to the real Christian life of battle, of faith, to trust in God and His promises. They get you through all the stuff you've been through and the stuff that lay on the horizon. So that brings me to the second part. What's this mean for us? Now, I think Peter means for them and the Holy Spirit through the church throughout history for us today to really get 
what he's doing here. To really feel this in our lives. The dynamic that because of biblical, I'm going to use the word, eschatology. Eschaton, Greek word for last. Ology, study of last thing. This teaching in the Bible of last things is crucial for your life. Now, we live in a, a time, I think, where, where the, a large segment of the church really just does not emphasize eschatology. Much at all. But instead emphasizes either extremely dangerous doctrines where the emphasis is Christian life is about you jumping through hoops. Watch how you use your mouth confession because it all kind of works according to law and legalism that if you confess the right thing and believe the right way, then, like a genie, you'll get what you want here on earth. Better homes and gardens and wives and husbands and houses. Not last thing. Or those who reject that, but there's been this market-driven which realizes you look to the customer to say, that's what marketing is about. What's going to get the kind of customer? We want women, we want men, we want this age or that age. How do you speak to them? What message do you get to them? And what happens is that the gospel, with its eschatology, gets de-emphasized and something else takes its place. Like self-esteem. Uh like, Jesus, here's a core. Don't you want to live better? Yes! He's the answer. And you just gutted the gospel. But eschatology, the end time carrot, is central. It's central. In every born-again person who has come to taste and embrace Christ, there's got to be something within us. Even if, it, even if we've, we've been cheated through our churches from realizing that, there's got to be something that says, yeah, I know, that's what I really care about. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to not have this sickness or this disease or a better car. You got it. But you know what? I know my soul is in peril. And that there's judgment day. It is coming. Is there an answer? And you just read the Bible and it's clear. That's the answer. And it's at the core of the problem of our sin and who God is that Christ came to deal with. And so the promise to every Christian dealing with suffering and persecution down here is it won't last forever. It's a vapor and is real and it is historically true that Jesus Christ came the first time. He's coming the second time. There's nothing that in our age changes that reality. Even though the world today in many ways is vastly different than the first century. It's vastly different than 150 years ago. We travel through space. We put robots on the planet Mars. 
We drive cars at 75, 80 miles an hour. We have air travel. We have electronic gadgets. Numbers of us in here can remember the stuff we do now. You sit, you can talk to that person on the other side of the planet and look at them while you're talking. You know, the, the idea of the internet, that was space age stuff to us in the 70s. But nothing really has changed when it comes to people, society, families, the big, massive predicament of all of us. Sinners. Hasn't changed. We're no better off. The gospel doesn't change. It cannot, it will not. The true gospel will not be replaced by any of it. By technology, by medicine, by psychiatry, by psychology, by any twisted man-centered idolatrous gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is that He alone can save you from the consequences, the justice that your sins deserve. That day is coming. And that's why Peter, not just in a text, he's already said few verses earlier, like I just quoted. Just think about that in light of so many Gospels today. Set your hope. And he uses the word. He could have just said set your hope. But fully upon the grace that is not attainable here in this mortal life. Okay. Upon the grace that will be. That's future. Eschaton revealed at the revealing of Jesus Christ. He means His second coming. Now, having said that, <laughs> it is true that there have been embarrassing, popular presentations of eschatology in the name of us conservative evangelical Christians that I think this is what happens it causes so many of us serious deep Bible loving Christians just to shy away from the topic of eschatology altogether there have been countless preachers and teachers who have made predictions whether it's a day or a year or a month or a generation that for sure because of the signs Christ is coming back and are so blasted sure just to be proved wrong again and again and again and again. Let me quote from you from Stanley Grins. In his book, The Millennial Mace, quote, The approach of the year, don't miss it, not 2000, but the, the approach of the year 1000 A.D. caused a great stir of expectation when both that year and A.D. 1033 which was a thousand years after Christ's death, they passed, with all this stories coming back and back, right? Oh, what happened? Well, interest then turned to A.D. 1065. For in that year, Good Friday coincided with the day of Annunciation, the Assumption of Mary. 
Multitudes, when that happened in 1065, multitudes of Christians journeyed to Jerusalem to await the Lord's return. In the United States, the 19th century brought continuous waves of interest in end times predictions, especially among those who looked for an earthly reign of Christ followed by that grand day. Historian Ernst Sadin notes that from 1843 to 1848, and again from 1867 to 1870, quote, prophetic calculation and civil unrest coincided to bring expectations to a boil. He adds, some prophetic scholars seem to possess an indestructible faith in their ability to predict the end, excuse me, to predict the time of the next great fulfillment of prophecy. No sooner had their hopes for one date been dashed by the passing of time than then they rushed back into print with another prediction. The rise of communism two world wars, the rebirth of the state of Israel, and the conflicts and tensions in the Middle East provided sufficient fodder for a repeat of end times and millennial speculation throughout the 20th century. And then comes the year 2000 and on. See, many people, my wife included, it was raised in a Christian home where she just knew for sure, because is what she's told. <laughs> she's not going to get to really grow up, you know, because Jesus will certainly be back in the next 10 years, or whatever, or 15. And, and the idea, why go to college? Why plan for the future? He's coming back, isn't he? Am I kind of on track? Yeah? All right. See, it's this kind of prophecy, interpretation, craziness that runs rampant in the church that I think has caused many of us Christians just to become indifferent (laughs) to any of it. But maybe indifferent to even concentrating on just actual Bible and struggling through the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ through the Apostle John. But see, this mainly that we're seeing, dispensational theology, world view, hermeneutic, approach to the Bible in general and to end time stuff specifically, which produces what I call newspaper theology. You open up the newspaper and then look at your Bible and you make more predictions. Because look what just happened with the Palestinians in Israel. It's that type of uh, theology within evangelicalism, which if you've never even heard the word dispensational, you've been affected by it. You just don't know it. It's that which produced in the 1970s Hal Lindsey's book, which sold, I think, over a million, probably four million, The Late Great Planet Earth. And then recently, in the last decade or so, the Left Behind series. Now, I, I, I get cynical. <laughs> I, 
about preaching, about people's writings and end times events, and especially that type of dispensational newspaper theology that thinks it can read the event and makes a big deal about it. Over the years, let me see, Adolf Hitler, he, 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 that's it. He's a pretty bad guy, and he's a pretty anti-Jesus guy. But if you have a theology, like many of these people do, that the Antichrist is one particular human being, and that's going to happen, well, Hitler, he was nominated. Oh, then Mussolini was nominated. Uh, Henry Kissinger was nominated, Secretary of State in the United States under Nixon. All right. Mikhail Gorbachev was nominated by us Christians. See that big red mark on his forehead there? All right. <laughs> when I was in Bible college, back in 1988, there was a Christian book out, well, whatever you call it, titled, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. What do you do when 1988 comes and passes? Well, you don't give the money back. You don't apologize and step down from ministry. You write another book. And you adjust your chart. 89 reasons why Jesus come back in 1989. So, I mean, I do get concerned about uh, types of Christians who seem to be utterly engulfed more than everything else in their Christian life than this type of eschatology. I mean, I've got to tell you, back in 2000, I, I, was, I, I was in, talk about cynicism, I was very cynical. I saw so much within the evangelical church world where churches are selling people big old containers to put their water in. And people were just thinking, something's going to have to happen. Okay, okay, I'll get nailed for that later. But I, I just I think an, an obsession with science fiction types of readings of the Bible. If and I've watched this over here and there. I just I think I have. I don't know. I could be wrong. My observation though of particular encounters with particular people that that's what they all they, they cared about. And my problem is if that's okay, but. Don't be a person like I encountered. What's your doctrine of sanctification? How are you battling your own sin? Do you understand the New Testament gospel of justification by faith alone? No, but they're very fascinated with church. That's when it becomes counterproductive. I'm just isn't it more thrilling to take the whole counsel of God? To understand Paul's view of the problem of evil, that it exists. Don't hide your head in the sand, Christian. Okay, This world is wicked and it's evil and things exist. And is there a good God? And if so, how do you reconcile it? Isn't it better to... Well, is this God's Word? How does Paul do that in Romans? What does Paul talk about the law in Galatians? How about the first John, love, the, the, kind, the, the constant pounding of our own lives and the test? Is my faith real? Okay, so, now, last point. Having said that, okay, eschatology. 
biblical theology on events in the last days that still haven't happened yet is a part. It, it's an important, cumulative, culminating part of redemptive history. And therefore, we should never set aside God's purpose to establish His eternal kingdom on earth. Now, while at the same time avoiding the stuff I just said, avoiding the craziness of reading the current event this week, the craziness of the year 2000's coming, maybe this is it, and get riled up. Avoiding that kind of stuff where people say, I know that this event means, or maybe means, such and such. Therefore, change your life a little bit this way. Avoid it. We need to abandon all that kind of speculation. But, some things we can know for sure. And this is what I think your eschatology better include. Jesus, who came and died and was resurrected and ascended, He will come again in the clouds of heaven. And He will raise everybody from the dead, the just and the unjust. He will bring about the one final judgment, separation of the sheep and the goats. And He will usher in that eternal age. Don't ever take lightly that reality. The eschaton. Biblical eschatology. Don't lose this reality as a constant gasoline to your vertical prayer life and your horizontal life. Because that's where Peter's going in our text. Because of this reality, be sober for prayer. Love one another. It's hard at times. That's why he's going to say, he's going to say, let eschatology be that that protects your heart from refusing to be hospitable. And when you are hospitable, Open up your life and your home. Let eschatology be that protects you from being bitter or grumbling about it. See, it's very connected to our everyday life. Okay? So having said it, just don't let the false prophecy interpreters take away this great truth from you. So, you know, the question really, it comes down to this. It comes down to a lot of people today. And look, look, I I would never tell anyone not to read Left Behind series, okay? I'm I'm not a book burner. I'm not that kind of person. I'll give my opinion. Just understand what you're doing. If you enjoy it, it's well written. Read Harry Potter. Read Left Behind. Maybe read Harry Potter because it's probably, I don't know. So... Because you might get confused thinking, yeah, that's the way it's all going to happen if you read something that... Okay. All right. Uh, But here's the question. With, yeah, did you see what happened? And, you know, this might happen in the next year more than you think. When? When? Okay, I just did it. I just prophesied it. No. No. If Israel goes to war, and I mean uses a nuclear warhead, 
which is a, a great possibility, I think. Okay, you, you'll hear stuff. But here, here's the question you've got to ask to yourself or to your Christian friend is, if that prediction, 80% true, that that means this, and in five years, question, will that change, whether it comes true, if it does come true, will that change how you live right now? I mean, is that going to really change your Christianity? If it does, I think that means you don't understand the gospel at the moment. You don't understand Christianity. If that would mean my life's going to be very different now. So, whether you've grown to be, look, and this is fine, there are places, there's reasons why there are all millennialist, premillennialist, postmillennialist. Okay, because there's one little verse in the Bible, and then everything's good. Okay, but there are reasons. There's smart people, and I'm not saying don't ever read on that stuff. You get time. It's good to know the basic. Why are they coming down in different ways to read the Book of Revelation, and what do they understand about chapter 20? In that one time, it's used of this thousand-year reign, and their understanding of that is it, it causes a way in which you will read. It's worthy. But, okay, no problem with where you come down on that. I don't have a problem with that. But all of those people who are true Christians and, and hold the orthodoxy, here's the thing that they all agree upon, and we are to agree upon, the essential doctrine of Jesus' second coming. To raise the dead, judgment day is coming. And He's going to usher in that kingdom. And as Peter says, fix your hope completely on that grace. You can know this. And know this for sure. He's coming back. Judgment day is coming. If Jesus is your Savior, you're in Him, you're assured that on that day when He opens up the book of life, you'll find your name is written down there from the foundation of the world. This is the hope of the Gospel. We are nearer to the end, I promise you this, than we were when I started this sermon. That's easy. So he's saying, wake up every day, loving Jesus' first coming and living in the light of eternity, the second coming. That, in our text, is the power of the Christian life. Come, sirs. Let me just end with a quotation of the way another apostle puts it. The apostle John says the same dynamic, I think, this way in 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. What do you mean? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The, the reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know Jesus. Beloved, we are God's children right now. And what we will be the future has not yet appeared. 
But we know this. That when, not if, when Jesus appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. One more verse. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies Himself. That's the process of the Christian life. Purifies Himself as He, Jesus, is pure. Let's pray. Lord, may the hope of Your coming be rooted in the joy of Your first coming and be rooted in the truth of the Gospel that all who would believe, who would receive, who would cling to, who would embrace who You are savingly to them personally is saved from sin and the wrath of God forever. May You cause every heart in here to hope. That is to put their marbles of trust and of purpose and of meaning into that one great basket of the Gospel. To the glory of Your name and to the expectation of that wonderful future day of Your second coming, we pray. Amen.